Hello and welcome back to the Church's True Faith Crisis and Reconstruction series. This is the final episode, Lived Experience. We are done with the historical issues, and today we're going to focus on the truth and beauty of the LDS Church in a post-Reconstruction paradigm. I've been trying to share a lot of those messages throughout the podcast series, but today we'll focus a little bit more on that. And then also we will talk about some of the day-to-day, week-to-week issues that you have when trying to live with this new, different kind of paradigm, difficulties in interaction with your ward members, your bishop, the frustration of the Sunday meetings sometimes, temple recommend issues, how to feel authentic, the cognitive dissonance that we've experienced sometimes, how to raise children in this new paradigm where, you know, that, that brings up a lot of different kind of unique issues. So let's get into that. I love our doctrine, doctrine of God the Father being a God of body parts and passion. Like Terrell Gibbons says, the God who weeps, our literal Father in heaven and a literal Mother in heaven. So grateful that we have the feminine divine aspect I love the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we went over in our last episode on the New Testament. I think we have a really good view of Jesus Christ and what his gospel means in our church. Because we have a view of the fall as the fortunate fall, which is somewhat unique in the world, we're not attached to the traditional Christian views of depravity of man and being obsessed with sin and atonement as satisfaction or substitutionary method. It frees us up to have a more optimistic view of the human family and a more expansive view of the atonement and of heaven. Terrell Givens is doing great work talking about shifting our concept of the atonement from substitution of sin to one of healing. It's not so much that sin makes us unworthy to be with God, but sin wounds us and hurts us and life damages us, and that Christ as healer can heal that so that we can become one with God as we remove these layers that we put on ourselves through sin and damage and difficulty and suffering in this life. And I understand these things more metaphorically, and so it may be confusing why I talk about them literally, but I think that even though we have a metaphorical view, they still very much impact the way that we think and our outlook on the world. I think we have a really good mix of grace and works. We need to challenge ourselves to to be the best we can be, but then at the same time be gentle with ourselves and know that there's grace, that we don't have to be perfect. The concept of building Zion and building heaven on earth, that's probably the number one thing that I'm jazzed about right now and it's giving me meaning in my life. I love our Sunday experience and the Sabbath and we try to make it a different day. We try to focus on worship and being with family, and we make it a special day, and I, and Sunday is my favorite day of the week, and I think we just nail the Sabbath experience in our church. I love the cultural identity that we have, and we've been a church for 200 years, but we have a very strong cultural identity. You look at the Jewish faith and Judaism and the cultural identity they have, and I think that's something that we can aim for and try to attain. They've been doing it much, much longer than us. 
but I think for the short time we've been doing it, we've established a strong cultural identity that I think really ties us to our ancestors, ties us together, and provides roots and provides a foundation for us. I love our pioneer ancestry, and we're not all related to pioneers literally, but we share that as our spiritual ancestors, those stories of the early LDS pioneers, and we can imagine their faith and that we're sharing in that faith and that purpose that they had. We've grown to a 15 million member church and maybe only 5 million active members, but we have quite a bit of organizational strength. We've got a core foundation that we can really do something good in the world. It's amazing that you can go anywhere in the world and with a few clicks of a website and a phone call, you can find someone who can help you if you're in need. You can show up at a church on a Sunday and find friends and find a support community and find people that will give you the shirt off their back. The church has $125 billion saved in its reserves, and that's been criticized by some recently as that's kind of come out in the news. But I think it's a strength, and I view us as being poised to use that to do something big and powerful and impactful in the world in relieving suffering and bringing to pass, expediting the building of Zion and heaven on earth. Here's a proposal. I'd love to see something like this happen. I've had three of my kids serve missions, and I'm all for missions, but there's a lot of downtime. There's a lot of wasted time on a mission that can't be effective with all their hours. What if you cut their proselyting time down to 50% and allocated 50% of their time to service? And then what if you took this $125 billion and took a little bit of that money, allocated some of those resources to this service organization and create facilities and structure, and you've got all this labor from the missionaries, and then you hire other professionals and, and use your capital resources to build structure and Overnight, almost, I think you have a service organization that can rival Red Cross and how powerful that would be. Maybe even as an experience for missionaries, that could be even a better experience for our young missionaries. I think we can be a big tent church. We had that September 6th in 1993 where we excommunicated six scholars, and that was kind of a dark period in Mormonism, I think. But I th really think we've moved past that, and I don't see us having any of that anti-intellectualism anymore, or at least we're evolving. We're evolving in the right direction. We're a church that can embrace science, embrace intellectualism, and I think we can be a big tent church. Our doctrine of eternal families and ceilings and our emphasis and focus on family, commitment to marriage, and I don't think that needs to be for straight marriage. I envision a future where we are the church that's committed to both straight marriage and gay marriage and a family of all sorts but that family is critically important and supporting marriage and producing excellent fathers and mothers and spouses. I envision this as one of the things that we can excel at. I love our youth program and the support that we have in raising children. It takes a village to raise a child, and in the church we have great mentors for our children. We have youth leaders and bishops, and I think the church is a great place to raise children. It's our job as parents to get our kids, to get them there, minimize teenage pregnancy and dependency on drugs and alcohol. We're not perfect, but I think we do a great job in those areas. And that's beneficial to our children to get them to that adult age where they can make more responsible decisions for themselves. 
I'm grateful for all the teachers and leaders and examples that my children have had, and it's been tremendously beneficial to me in raising my children. In Richard Rohr's book, Falling Upwards, he talks about the first half of life and second half of life. And Jack Nanique is one of my favorite podcasters. He does the podcast called Mormon Awakenings. He did an episode on this first half of life concept, relating it to in the church. And the church is a great first half of life institution. The first half of life is characterized as a need for instruction, a need for mastery of life, a need for rules, a need for good parents and teachers and coaches and religious leaders. You need simple formulaic instruction on how to master life. And then you start to master life and you figure things out. You figure out what you're good at, what you're not good at, figure out what works for you, and you move into the second half of life. And in the second half of life, you look back at your church leaders and they might seem bossy and shallow and rigid, and that's kind of how it goes. The first half of life, you need that. Second half of life, you don't need it quite so much. I would like to celebrate the church as being a great first half of life institution, and maybe we can try to become a better second half of life institution. But also, I think that if you've graduated into the second half of life in these areas that you can participate in your church, be the mentor for the people that need first half of life experience, and Continue to participate in the church for your children and your grandchildren and for the, the youth in your ward and in your community who need a good first half of life experience. A lot of people who have been through faith crisis and reconstruction and are still engaging in the church in a different paradigm, a lot of times we're motivated to do this because of family, because of a spouse that's more believing than we are or for children or so on. I sometimes think, what if I was single? What if I was alone in this, would I still want the church after going through faith crisis? And the answer for me is yes. And the reason is that the church provides a growth framework. The things that the church challenges me to do and pushes me to do and think about, I don't think I would normally ordinarily do those if I didn't have the church in my life. I need the sacrament. I need to course correct. You probably know the word sin in the Greek in the New Testament means to miss the mark if we have a goal to be like jesus christ and to be a good moral person then we go about our week and it's easy to get off track and i love the sacrament and the idea that i'm going to go exercising my faith i have faith that the gospel in jesus christ is going to help me get to where i want to go then i repent of my sins i think about the things that i've done that have taken me off the mark and i think about what i need to do to better serve people, be better in my relationships, be more humble, to avoid the natural vices of, of man, of laziness and greed and lust and violence and rage. I need the reminder that I want to get back on track and I want to repent of where I've missed and I want to, and I want to do it right. And I love and appreciate and I'm so grateful and I need the church. I need the Savior to help me do that. We talked last episode about seeing the image of God in the burning bush and in the blackberry bush. I love the church for facilitating this spiritual experience and this seeking God and struggling with God and, and discovering this mystery. I have a desire and a longing to seek for God, and not everyone has that, but if you have that, then the church can be a great place to facilitate that. And this list is going to be different for everyone. 
some of the things that I list here are not relevant to you. And some of the things that are very relevant to you might not be as relevant to me. And that's great. Everyone has a list of what the church can help them do. Another one I wrote a blog post about this around Christmas time a couple of years ago is that the church is great at producing George Bailey's It's a Wonderful Life is my favorite movie, and I just love George Bailey, and he is such a model for me of being a Christ-like person, and he's got these dreams that he wants to go experience the world and get out of his small town, and he thinks he needs to go and accomplish things and achieve things and be this great person doing a bigger life than he thinks he's doing. But he's always stuck there in his hometown, in this small town, and he's serving people, and he's just a bedrock of the community helping the poor people and marginalized people and being committed to his spouse and his family. And he has these moments where he regrets this and he feels stuck sometimes. And we need to have balance in our life and we can't feel like we're always living for other people. And so if you feel like you're out of balance, then go ahead and be selfish for a while and do what you need to do for yourself. But I find that when I go too far in that direction, then I feel worse and I feel better about myself when I'm trying to connect to the people that I love and serve them and make life better for other people, I find that my life becomes better. I want to be like George Bailey and the church is encouraging me and helping me to become like George Bailey. And that is how I find meaning in my life. Richard Bushman says, we are the people of goodwill. He talks about radiant Mormonism and he talks about two aspects of this. First, we are competent people. We are overrepresented in fields like doctors, lawyers, accountants, government leaders. We're competent people. We're achievement-oriented. We seek education. We're smart and we're competent. And then also we're service-oriented. You put those two things together, being competent and being service-oriented, and we can accomplish a lot of good in this world. I think we're the Christian church with a view of a fortunate fall that makes us not so obsessed with sin and a more expansive heaven and a more positive outlook on humanity and being literal children of God and have divinity in us and recognizing the divinity in others. We have a modern prophet so that we can adapt and grow in modern society. We're like an evangelical church in that we take church seriously and it's important to us and that's evident in our covenants. But I think we have the potential to also be like a mainline Christian church in that we're science friendly and we can embrace intellectualism. We're known as an achievement-based church focusing on good works and service. That's a great religion. And then you take the uniqueness of the Book of Mormon. Greg Prince once said that there's very few books that have been successful like the Book of Mormon. And he says that Joe Smith was able to see the image of God and create symbols for his people to share in that experience. And the Book of Mormon has been very successful in doing that. And he says the Bible and the Quran maybe are the only two other books of scripture that have been as successful as the Book of Mormon. So you take the Book of Mormon and you take these other things that we have, and that's a great missionary message. We can say we're the true church and that's fine, but outside of our exclusivity claims, we have a lot that we can be proud of and that we can focus on and that we can emphasize in a missionary setting. Okay, I hope I have painted a picture of why the church is true for me outside of the traditional truth claims. Now let's transition and get into some of the issues of the lived experience. In order to engage in the church with this paradigm, it's different than what most people are doing, right? You need to have a strong sense of your own personal authority and independence. Everybody else is telling you 
you can't do Mormonism like that. You have to do it this other way. But they're wrong. You can do Mormonism however you want. You can control your experience. You can make church what you want it to be. Church doesn't have to be what everyone else tells you it has to be for you. Church can be what you want it to be. You're an adult, and you get to make decisions in your life, and you get to define what meaning different things have in your life and what meaning the church has in your life. It's important what the bishop says. It's important what the prophet says. It's important what Joseph Smith said, but it's not the end all. It's okay to say the bishop might think this, the prophet might think this, Joseph Smith might have said this about the Book of Mormon, but I view it differently, and this is how I'm doing it. There's this idea of buffet Mormonism and a criticism of it that you can treat Mormonism like it's a buffet and you can go down the line and you can say, I want this, but I don't want this and I want this. That's a criticism that you can't do it that way. You have to take all of it. I have a couple approaches to that. One is that even though people like me have deconstructed and reconstructed with a different paradigm and we may not see value in all of Mormonism, I think there's value and just having faith in the whole thing, and just saying, I'm going to go all in, and I'm going to take Alma's experiment, and I'm going to see if this enlarges my soul, and I think you might find that it does. And I think, even if you don't believe in every little aspect, if you attempt to obey it all and live it all to the best of your ability, I think you're going to be rewarded. But that doesn't work for everybody, so here's another view, is that I think everybody exhibits a form of buffet Mormonism in some way, even the general authorities. If you look at general authority talks, each of them seem to have their own style and their own topics that they focus on, their own perspective. Mormonism is so huge. It's so expansive that it's really impossible to be representing all of it in its fullness, ex exhibiting all of it at all times. We really have to limit it to some degree and say, this is what I'm going to focus on. These are the things that I'm going to emphasize in my life. And I think that's how it's meant, that different people can pick and choose the parts that are most meaningful and most helpful to them. And maybe other aspects will, will come into their life in different times and become important in different times. But we all experience Mormonism in this buffet Mormonism in some way. Okay, to emphasize some of the lived experience aspects, I'm going to highlight David Osler's great book, Bridges, that came out last year. Bridges, Ministering to Those Who Question. David Osler was a former mission president who came home from his mission, and he was assigned as a service missionary in his stake. In his stake, there were a 1,000 single adults, and 80% of them were not active. And he went out ministering to them, and he started getting a similar kind of view from a lot of these people. And he recognized that there was a serious problem that he wanted to address. He put up a survey to try to get some data this is not a statistically valid survey. It's a self-selected survey, but we find some very valuable insights. And these observations go right in line with my observations, with what I've seen in my 10 years of doing this and the last five years of doing this very actively and interacting with a lot of people who have been through faith crisis and reconstruction. He divided the issues into three categories and came up with hypothesis that if the church could positively address these three areas, that these people that have been through faith crisis and a deep night of the soul faith crisis, when I read these stories that are a lot like mine, that they could remain active in the church and remain positively engaged in the church if the church could meet these needs in these three areas. Those three areas are trust, belonging, and meaning. Let's get into some detail on that. First is trust. 
Do I trust the church and my church leaders? Even with the limitations of church members and leaders, I have confidence that the church and its leaders will help me find spiritual purpose and guidance. I trust leaders and other members to help me as I make choices for my own spiritual growth. One woman responded, Trust. I have a very hard time trusting the church because of the many times I was lied to about church history. I think the church is getting better. We've talked about this, the Gospel Topics essays, and we've moved a little bit, but I think there's a lot more we can do. In the study, David Osler got both people that have gone through faith crisis, and then also he had a data set of local leaders asking them these same questions. So local leaders were asked the question, how important do you think it is to address faith crisis in these settings? 98% answered, very important or important that the church address these issues in the church generally, in the stake, and at the ward level. And then when you take the data from those in faith crisis, the question was asked, the church as a whole provides adequate information for leaders to help people who are in faith crisis? Less than 1% answered strongly agree or agree. So there's a major disconnect that our local leaders are recognizing this is important, and people that have gone through faith crisis are overwhelmingly saying this is not being addressed. This is really difficult because faith crisis is catchy. Let's say in a ward you had 10 people that had a real burning question about the book of Abraham, and you had a fireside about the book of Abraham, and, and you were able to present the issue in a way that it would satisfy 80% of the people. So out of your 10, 8 out of 10 are fine, 2 out of 10 st still are troubled. But then, by presenting the problem, now everyone in the board now is aware of the problem. They're going home, they're Googling Book of Abraham problems, they're reading the CES letter. You might have lost the 20% in that other larger group that never even questioned. So the church has a really difficult time. How do we inoculate? How do we teach these issues without spreading the problem to everyone else who isn't who doesn't have faith crisis on their horizon right now. And I think this is really tough to face, but I think it's time that we just all faced it as a church. So many of our young people are going through this. So many of our young people are being faced with CS that are and the answers are not adequate right now. And I think every fact and issue that I brought up in this 12-episode podcast series, we could integrate into our curriculum somehow through seminary, institute, Sunday school lessons. I don't know how, but I think it's time that the church thought about how to integrate all of these issues. The Gospel Topics essays were a good first start, but we need to do more. We need to go deeper, and we need to integrate this all through our curriculum. Maybe even we need a message from the prophet that says, it's okay to view the Book of Mormon as non-historical. It's okay to believe in evolution. It's okay to believe that polygamy was never ordained of God. There's a lot of questions that we're just not sure about. It's okay to have these alternate ideas. Is that going to cause that big of a problem if we just made a short statement like that? The prophet could say, we believe the Book of Mormon is historical. We believe that polygamy is ordained of, was ordained of God. That's our official position. We believe that Adam and Eve were real people and that the Garden of Eden is the literal event. But we understand that a lot of people are starting to view these things metaphorically, and we want them to stay in the church. We want them to feel comfortable. Could the prophet do that? I think if you ran the numbers and thought about what the downside of that is and what the upside of that is and how you, how you can keep people in the church, I think I don't think it's that risky. I think it's I think we can pull it off. 
Osler's suggestion for leaders on this is to listen, listen, listen. Don't get defensive or try to rebut or argue or even always try to give answers. Don't judge. Don't label the doubters as apostates or doubters. Take steps to address their concerns. That's the hard part, but be careful about apologetics. Apologetics are not always going to convince everyone, and so you can you can give the apologetics kind of as a first line of defense, but if that's not working or if there's too much defensiveness, then then don't like keep doubling down on apologetics and maybe look for for broader answers. This is something I think a lot about of how the church can implement these kind of things. And here's an idea. What if every stake had a faith crisis class and it was team taught by maybe someone who was more of a fair Mormon apologist and then maybe someone who views things more like me? What if these people team taught a stake level faith crisis class and they covered all the issues like this 12-hour podcast series and even more and they each gave their take. They gave the traditional Fair Mormon take that preserves a literal testimony and LDS exclusivity, and, and it preserves the, the traditional LDS testimony. And then you give this more metaphorical take, acknowledging that maybe some of this is not what we think, but there's a different way to think about it. I think maybe a class that's team taught like that, that gave both perspectives, is something that could, I don't know. I don't know if that could work or not, but that's an idea I had. Okay, now I'm going to turn the tables. David Osler wrote this book, and his audience was other church leaders. And that's good, and I appreciate that. As, as being someone that's considered the doubter in this equation, I, I appreciate someone like David Osler, who's a former mission president, who's looking out for me, and who's representing me, and trying to give other church leaders ideas of how to help me. But as a doubter, or as the person in faith reconstruction, I believe I have a responsibility also. I understand that I have a testimony that's different than the mainstream. I want to stay in this church. I have the largest part of the responsibility. I'm hoping that the church can make space for me and my other members and other members of my ward can make space for me. But I believe I have the larger job to fit myself into something that we can all get along. And so I'm going to be a little preachy here to my people to people who are in my shoes, what we can do in this area of trust. We can give the benefit of the doubt to general authorities. When we hear a general conference talk, we can hear a lot of things that we don't like and a lot of negative things, and we can look for, we can imagine them as controlling, we can imagine them as manipulating, we can be very critical, or we can give our leaders the benefit of the doubt, and we can try to be more empathetic and sympathetic to them. They have a tough job. They're trying to manage a church. On one side of the church, they have super conservative people. And then on the other side of the church, they have super liberal people. They have a real challenge in keeping this together because I think we have something good. We have something important to do as a church. How are we going to keep everybody together in order to accomplish this good? So I can be generous with the general authorities. I can assume good intentions. And also for the people in my ward, in my bishop, I can assume good intentions. Okay, next is belonging. Despite the difficulty of refitting one's nuanced testimony into the word setting, many of those in faith crisis expressed, expressed a desire to stay in the church if they could be accepted. 89% answered strongly agree or agree to the question, I want to belong in the church community if I can be who I am. 
But sadly, only 9% answered strongly agree or agree to the question, I can be authentic with my ward about the major issues in my life. I don't know how statistically significant these numbers might be, but that's powerful. This is really suggesting that this middle way group is stronger and more and has more potential than I think people realize. Pete N. said, church is too often the most risky place to be spiritually honest. We have a need for authenticity. We need to feel like we are authentic. The cognitive dissonance that we experience in Sunday meetings is very difficult. What can the church do to reduce the messages related to things that cause the most cognitive dissonance or make the doubter the most fidgety sitting in Sunday school class? The blatant proof texting and the whitewashed history, can we get rid of that? Can we make it safe for doubters to speak up when they need to? David Osler says, We can find ways to affirm the comments given in class that we think might be policed. If we are teachers, we can vocally affirm a comment as soon as it's given. We can say, I'm glad you brought that up. I can see how one could feel that. Or, that is a real interesting idea. I'm going to think about it. Thank you for sharing. Or, I've never thought about it like that. I am so glad we can look at things with different perspectives. If we are students, we can simply turn and look at the person who is speaking and show our interest through a nod. Now to my peeps in this issue of belonging. It's important to be authentic, but there's a time and place for everything, right? We understand we just don't run our mouths in every situation. We get ourselves in trouble. We don't share information about ourselves in places that are not safe. There's a time and place for criticism. Sunday meetings can be a place where we can look for ways to be authentic, but we need to be very skillful about it. And outside of church might be easier place for us to express some of our unorthodox ideas and look for ways to be authentic. There are Facebook groups, there are forums, message me, let's go to lunch, find a friend that you can talk to. I think we in this area need to build community and need to find ways to share our feelings and talk about things to and be supported to help us in this journey. And I'll get into some of that a little bit later as we conclude. But the Sunday meeting is not always the right place for that. Fiona Givens says that we need to build street cred. If we show up for service projects, if we're there at church, if we're positive, if we're supporting people, if people know they can count on us, they know we're one of the good guys, then we build that street cred and we can make comments. We can express some criticism in gentle ways and we can make those difficult comments or we can express some criticism if we have that street cred, it's a little bit easier. I think we should always ask ourselves, what's our motive? If we feel like we need to make that comment in Sunday school class, what's our motive? Is it to deconstruct others? Or do you just feel the commitment to truth and you just feel like you just need to voice dissent in that moment or you're going to go crazy or you don't want your silence to be seen as agreement? I'm not saying that we should never voice a differing opinion in a Sunday setting, but we just need to be very careful about it and checking our motives and understanding if this is something that we really need to do for our authentic selves or if we have some other motive. And then we need to be skillful. Try not to use confrontational language. We can say it's more helpful for me to personally view it like this, dot, dot, dot. We can do our homework and we can find quotes from general authorities or from LDS scholars, BYU professors who support alternate ways of thinking. And so 
when things come up about LGBT issues or female equality issues that we need to jump in on, we can do so with backing of LDS sources and we can do it using non-confrontational and skillful language. If we want to talk about scripture historicity issues or proof texting issues, we can also do that skillfully. But then again, are you saying it to deconstruct others because you have knowledge that you think others need or that you want to break testimony? Or are you saying it to be helpful or to help guard against faith crisis for other people? Other people are going to come across these issues eventually, so I think it's very helpful for us to gently inoculate with comments like this. But if our motive is to deconstruct, then I think that we're in the wrong. Fidgeting in your seat and raising your hand with an angry face and, and saying, not a single credible scholar thinks Abraham is a real person, so it's silly to be talking like this. That's probably not going to fly. That's going to hurt the spirit in the room. But there's ways to get that same point across, maybe, if you feel like you need to to be authentic or you feel like there's a reason outside of just being ornery or just trying to deconstruct others. If you think there's a need for that comment, there's a way to skillfully do that. We can learn how to teach, how to testify without saying things that are incongruent. It's something that I'm getting better and better at, and we don't have to follow the other patterns. We can stand up and give a testimony and give it in the pattern that we want to and that is comfortable for us. And I think other people love when people are authentic and bear a testimony that's maybe a little bit non-traditional and is a little bit more real and authentic. I think people appreciate that. Let's do that. Spencer Fluman gave a really great address at BYU that I found very inspiring. He said, a word of caution from one who has intermittently done it wrong in the past, sometimes academic training, and let's substitute our faith reconstruction for academic training. Sometimes faith reconstruction can distance us from the body of Christ because we ask different questions or ask them differently. We can come to believe that our perspectives are more important than others who may lack our training or our experience. We can grow impatient or condescending with our fellow saints. We can become cynical. I've experienced some of this. I have bite marks on the inside of my lips from past Sunday school lessons to prove it, but I rarely experience those frustrations these days. What changed things for me was church service, actually. As I have come to better comprehend the scale of human suffering around us, my questions have changed. Rather than being haunted by the fact that other saints don't care about the same questions I do in every instance, I've been obliged to reframe the problem this way. How can my academic training, and let's say, how can my faith reconstruction answer the problem of human suffering or contribute to the redemption of the human family. Such a question challenges us to consecrate our minds and training to God's purposes. It moves us towards that primeval command to love God with all our minds. Think about that. The law of consecration, we are giving our mind to the kingdom of God. Think about that in the context of if you've been through faith crisis and reconstruction. The kingdom of God needs your mind what can you do to bless the kingdom of God with your mind? There's a perspective that you can share that people need. Your insights into documentary hypothesis and New Testament textual criticism and Book of Mormon translation and early church history, these insights are valuable. And so let's find a way to contribute in a responsible way and not in a way that deconstructs. In this pivot, my cynicism has faded, mostly. As God has brought me into closer proximity to suffering, I have had far less time for cynicism. Ultimately, reframing in this way has drawn me profoundly towards rather than away from my fellow saints. I share that sentiment. My faith reconstruction has brought me towards my fellow saints, not away. Okay, next topic, meaning. With faith crisis and reconstruction usually comes the paradigm shift where the things we find meaningful are still there, but different. 
Osler's faith crisis study, 90% answered strongly agreed to, prior to my faith crisis, church doctrines were spiritually meaningful to me, yet only 20% answered strongly agreed to, the church addresses the spiritual issues that are most important to me. What's meaningful to me, I've said, are the messages that inspire me to repent, forgive, serve, be more like Christ, messages that inspire me to want to seek and discover God, creating Zion, creating heaven on earth, messages that remind me of my duty and invite me to make sacrifices. What's not as meaningful, messages that simply reinforce the fact that our scriptures are true or that we are the exclusively true religion, messages that focus on a value proposition in the next world, i.e. keep your covenants if you want to live with your family forever. It's more meaningful for me to hear, keep your covenants because this is how they help you be a better person. Messages that seem overly literal, like we need to do missionary work in order to restore the last 10 tribes, that's very difficult for someone who's been through a faith crisis and reconstruction. But I still think there's powerful meaning in missionary work. We can shift the focus just a little bit from meaning being established in the truth claims versus meaning being established in the lived experience. And I'm not asking for a complete change. I'm not saying that we need to stop testifying that we're the one and only true church. But if we could just tweak the message just a little bit. When we're teaching about the first vision, instead of teaching it as it's proof that we're the only true church or proof that God and Jesus are separate or that they have physical bodies, to prove that our doctrine is true, what if we taught the meaning of the first vision was that God is now speaking to all people and that revelation is alive in the world today? Temple work. We find peace in the temple, and by doing ordinances, we are emotionally and spiritually connected to our ancestors, and we remember the important covenants that we have, versus we do temple work because our dead ancestors are waiting for them to be done. I'm not saying we can never say that. I'm not saying never say that, but if we could shift just a little bit so that the other message is the messages that are more meaningful to those in faith reconstruction are a little bit more prevalent, that'd be very helpful. Pornography. Pornography distracts you from the present moment, and if abused, can make sexual connection in a marriage more difficult, whether you're married now or plan to be in the future. That's great. Pornography is evil and causes you to be unworthy to exercise your priesthood. Not as meaningful. So I'm not asking for the world here. I'm just asking for a small tweak. Now, talking to my people about how we can find meaning. What's our responsibility? I think we can learn to find metaphorical meaning in literal messages. It becomes a skill that you can get better at the more you do it, and I'm getting a little bit better at it. I'm really working to apply Nephi's counsel of likening the scriptures to ourselves, and these metaphorical messages are just jumping out at me as I reread and study the scriptures with a new mindset. Here's an example of shifting a focus and finding a different kind of meaning. We sing the song, Ye Elders of Israel, and it sounds like a battle hymn, and you've got this rhetoric of anti-Babylon. And from one perspective, you might think, oh, we're creating fake enemies, and we're creating this us-versus-them attitude, and we're putting a military rhetoric into this, and this just feels yucky from that perspective. But then look at the words. We'll go to the poor like our captain of old and visit the weary, the hungry, and cold. We'll cheer up their hearts with the news that he bore and point them to Zion in life evermore. So what are we doing in this army, in this battle? We're visiting the weary and the hungry, and we're creating Zion, and we're cheering up people's hearts. That's a great message. And so by looking for the positive in things and by looking for meaning that is meaningful to us and ignore the things that bother us and focus on the things that are good and uplifting, I think we have a responsibility to orient ourselves to looking for these positive messages. 
if you're sick of hearing about Satan, Satan is one of those things that doesn't make a lot of sense from a literal standpoint, but makes a lot of sense from a metaphorical standpoint. If you can picture Satan as a representation of the potential evil that each of us have, or even the negative self-talk and the evil voices in our head, then we can shift how we're viewing Satan. And now when we hear leaders talking about Satan, instead of being annoyed and irritated, we can find meaning in that. Look for LDS theologians who are paving the way from a kind of reconstructed perspective. Some of my favorites are Adam Miller, Terrell Givens, the Maxwell Institute, the Jack Danique Mormon Awakenings podcast, and create your own. I'm trying to do some of that in this podcast, but that's not my best skill. But let's start creating more of this theology, more of this meaning. We have beautiful doctrine that's, that's just waiting to be explored in a more robust and broader and intellectually robust way. Let's do it. We can find meaning outside of the restored church. Some of my favorites are Richard Rohr, Pete Enns, Marcus Borg, The Liturgist Podcast, Rob Bell, Brene Brown, U2 Lyrics, The On Being Podcast, Buddhism, Thich Nhat Hanh, Audio Dharma Podcast, Eckhart Tolle. I'm finding meaning in a lot of these things. And then when I go back and explore LDS scriptures and I hear general conference talks and Sunday lessons, I'm finding Buddhism in those messages and I'm finding Brene Brown empathy in those messages and I'm finding Richard War mysticism in these messages. And so going outside of our tradition and finding religious meaning and then bringing it back into our tradition, I think is a great way to go about this. Another quote from the Spencer Fluman talk. Its significance in the world depends on our collective, intellectual, and spiritual force as a gathering of God's children. You might think of yourself as seeking God here, but in truth, He has been seeking you. He is fitting you for a world that needs you. There are always problems afoot that will demand our very best, and then some from poverty to racism, to ecological collapse, to rampant inequality, to sexual violence, to poor health care, to religious freedom, to deficient education. This world groans under the weight of our collective failures. This world yearns for a people with a broad and compelling vision infused with the hope and compassion that the gospel of Jesus Christ inspires in each of us. In short, this world needs you. Do you want to make a difference in your communities? You are at the right university. Do you want to change the world? You're in the right church. That's very inspiring to me, and I believe it. I want to make a difference in the world, and I think I'm in the right church to do it. Okay, let's talk about a sticky subject, the Temple Recommend. My Temple Recommend is important to me. My covenants are important to me. I advocate to others who have been through faith crisis and reconstruction that they can view the Temple and their covenants and their Temple Recommend the same as they ever did, with the same importance. I also think it's easier to do a Mormon life when you're not a project and you're not on the problem list and, and you're able to have a calling and you're able to be a normal member and your children are treated like normal members. I think there's value in approaching Mormonism from that orthoprax standpoint. Orthopraxy has to do with our actions and orthodoxy has to do with our beliefs. I believe in orthopraxy despite unorthodoxy. And so I think it's a lot easier and more valuable to approach Mormonism with the Temple Recommend and doing a calling and going all in. I'm going to present this from that perspective. Leadership roulette is a thing. There are 30,000 words and branches, and every one of those bishops is going to view the Temple Recommend questions a little bit differently. The church counsels leaders not to go into depth 
and ask probing questions to just simply ask the questions and members are to give yes or no answers. I believe that we as members, including us that have been through faith crisis and reconstruction, should take the temple recommend questions, grapple with them with God, and through the Holy Ghost decide for ourselves what the answers are. And then we should go into the temple recommend and answer yes, no, accordingly. And if the answers are no, then you might as well not even set the temple recommend interview. But if the answers are yes, then set the temple recommend interview and go in and answer the temple recommend questions and get your temple recommend. If you don't think you can answer the temple recommend questions, then let's break them down and see if there are ways to view these in a way that you can. First of all, do you have faith in and a testimony of God, the Eternal Father, His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost? And then also, do you have a testimony of the Atonement and the Savior, and do you have a testimony of the Restoration of the Gospel? The word is faith. The word is not belief. The word is faith. And faith exists outside of belief. It's to put our trust in something and to act as if one believes or knows. So, if you act as if there's a God and His Son Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost and in the Atonement of Christ and in the Restored Gospel, then I think you can answer yes to those questions. I don't think this is a dodge. I don't think this is a sneaky way to do it. I think this is the exact way that the Church intends these questions to work. And we'll skip some of these questions. We're just going to hit the questions that are the most difficult here. Next question, do you sustain the President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as a prophet, seer, and revelator? And the only person on the earth authorized to exercise all the priesthood keys, and then likewise for the first presidency, corner of the twelve, and your the other general authorities and your local leaders. We talked about what sustain means in the episode on prophets. Go back and listen to that one because we had a very in-depth dis discussion. But to summarize, the word sustain means to recognize their authority and to generally support them in their cause. It, it doesn't mean that you don't disagree with them sometimes. It doesn't even require that you like them. It means that you recognize their authority, and that you support generally what they're doing. I think this is a very low threshold and should be easy for anybody who's listening to this podcast. If you're very antagonistic towards the church, and if you want to harm it, and if you want people to leave the church, and if you support organizations that are like that, then maybe you can't answer that temple recommend question. But I think too many people think if I disagree with the brethren on gay marriage or on uh, historicity of the Book of Mormon, I have to say no, I have to have integrity. And I just disagree with that mentality completely. Next question, do you support or promote any teachings, practices, or doctrine contrary to those of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? That's a pretty open-ended question, and I think everybody in the church could say yes to that technically in some way, right? Do you support or promote any teachings, practices, or doctrine contrary to those of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? I mean, if you cheer for the Utes or the Aggies, that's a yes right there. We went over this in depth in our Prophets episode also, but Elder Christofferson clearly explained that this question is specifically focused on actively supporting an organization that is actively working to harm the Church and hurt its ability to operate. My take is basically... Do you harshly criticize the brethren, or do you do things to actively lead people away from the church? If not, then I think you're good to go on this question. Then the other temple recommend questions related to behavioral questions, I think that's up to you how to interpret them. Tithing is a tough one for some people, but I believe personally in contributing to a cause I believe in. How you define tithing, I think, is something that's open to a lot of interpretation. I believe in financially supporting the church. 
Elder Uchtdorf said, If you could see into our hearts, you would probably find that you fit in better than you suppose. You might be surprised to find that we have yearnings and struggles and hopes similar to yours. Your background or upbringing might seem different from what you perceive in many Latter-day Saints, but that could be a blessing. Brothers and sisters, dear friends, we need your unique talents and perspectives. The diversity of persons and peoples all around the globe is the strength of this church. I think God wants you to have a temple recommend. I think the prophet wants you to. I think if you wrestle with these questions and you pray to God and you feel comfortable with how you're answering them, then I think you have 100% integrity and congruity and authenticity to go in and simply answer the questions yes or no. I don't think the Temple Recommend interview is a place to get your faith crisis questions addressed. I don't think bishops are equipped to handle that effectively. Frankly, I think it's a bit immature to go in and when you're asked these Temple Recommend questions, to throw it back on your leader and say, well, I believe in gay marriage and I believe in this and I believe in that. What do you think? I think that's a little immature. It's outsourcing our own responsibility and accountability to someone else. We're adults here. We're responsible for our own life and our own temple recommend. If you have objections to the church to the point where you don't want a temple recommend or you would feel inauthentic entering the temple, then I think that's a perfectly rational position to take and to take a stand on. If you think, no, I am against the church and I want to take a stand by showing them that I do not want a temple recommend, then that's up to you. I would never criticize that. But what I disagree completely with is someone who says, I have too much integrity to take a temple recommend because I don't believe in everything the church says. I believe in evolution. And Elder Holland once said in a talk that there was no death before the fall, so therefore I can't have a temple recommend. I have integrity, and I have to say no to the temple recommend questions. I just completely disagree with that mentality. And I don't think that's what the prophet intends or the brethren intends for the temple recommend interview process. Okay, next question, callings. If you enjoy serving in the church, then I think you should keep your calling. And if you don't want a calling, then don't have a calling. You're an adult. But if you'd like a calling and you enjoy serving and you enjoy teaching, then accept a calling. I don't think you need to explain to the bishop specifically about all your beliefs and about all the reasons why you might not be perfect for the calling. I teach the 15-year-olds. I love my calling. I love teaching the gospel. I want those kids that I teach to grow and flourish in the gospel and have testimonies of the gospel and and stay in the church. I want them to be inoculated against some of these faith crisis issues, so I might inoculate them gently on some of these issues. I don't feel a need to deconstruct them. I don't feel a need to share all of my views. I can teach the lesson material, and I can focus on the things that I believe in. The church needs people to serve, and I think we have something to offer, and I think we can teach skillfully and we can teach in a way that's good for orthodox belief and unorthodox belief. I get faced with this logic frequently. The church does a lot of harm, and by you staying in it and not leaving and calling attention with all of your resources and trying to kill the church, you are propping up the church and enabling it to continue to harm people. So let me address that one. I give a list of all the things that I love about the church and what I think is good about the church. And if you ask me to give a list of all the things that I don't like about the church, I could write that list. And there are things that the church does that I believe are wrong that I think harm people. 
I think specifically LGBT issues are one that's very difficult for our church right now that I don't think we have a great answer for. I think some of the female equality issues also are harmful. I think some of the sexual shame that our youth experience is another one, potentially. So I acknowledge that the church does some harm. The church, like many other organizations and like people in general, is not all good and not all bad. And I think that the church is by far a net good. And that's very important to me. If I didn't believe that the church was a net good in the world, then I wouldn't want to be a part of it. For me to be supportive of the church, the church needs to be a net good in the world and net good in my life individually. And I believe that it is in a very strong way. Some of the things that we do are negatively impacting our members. And so we need to look at that and we need to minimize that risk and fix it and help it. And I have optimism that we will. I have optimism that we're going in the right direction. And I know that I have privilege as a white heterosexual male living in Utah that my perspective is maybe geared towards my personal perspective, but I'm trying my best to look at the church as a whole. And I believe that we're good and I believe that we're getting better. And I want to be a part of the effort that's helping us get better. So I don't think it's wrong to acknowledge that we're doing some harm, but I also believe that we are a net good in getting better. I'm going to address some of the frequently asked questions that I get. Another frequently asked question is Joseph Smith says that there were literal gold plates and that the Book of Mormon is historical and that he met Angel Moroni and doesn't it make Joseph Smith a liar and isn't our church found on lies and a fraud if that's true? And my answer to that is just that I think it's just a lot more complicated than that black and white. I think Joseph Smith believed he had a mission to do. I think he had an interaction with God. I think he knew he was called to bring forth an important work, and I think he viewed that as clarifying all of the truest Christian doctrines. And I think maybe he made mistakes in how he implemented that. I think maybe he made mistakes, and I think it's a combination of some degree of pious fraud, some degree of delusion, some degree of others telling his story and making it cleaner, some degree of misremembering things 10 years later. All of these things work to create the whitewashed history that we have that I don't think represents what actually happened. But I have a love for Joseph Smith. I believe he was having authentic religious experiences, and I have a love and appreciation for him despite the mistakes that I think he probably made along the way. But in a way, none of that is relevant at all. In a way, all that's relevant is the title of this podcast episode, The Lived Experience. What's happening in my heart today while I go to church and I take the sacrament and I try my best to be a good Mormon? That's really all that matters. Another question I get a lot is, I started out being anonymous in this world for for the first few years. In the last couple of years, I've, I've, I've come out of the closet and used my real name. And the question is, what's happening in my ward and with my family and friends and local leaders? I don't have a need to make waves in my local ward and among my local sphere of influence and in my local community. I put great value on cohesiveness and unity, and I acknowledge that I'm the weird one in a way, and so I'm trying to conform as much as possible. And I do have a need to be congruent at times and to be authentic at times, and I'll bear my testimony and share uh, vaguely about my faith experience and how I view things metaphorically, and I've received great feedback from that. But I don't have a strong need to ruffle a lot of feathers, and 
and my blogs and my podcasts are still low key enough that not a lot of people are coming up to me in person asking me about them, but that will change over time. And so this is an experiment to see how it will work. I'm committed to model this. So we'll keep checking back to share how this is going. Another question, what would convince you that the church is not true? Seems like the church is true no matter what. And so again, my answer would be if the church, if I view the church as a net harm instead of a net positive, or if the lived experience was not leading me to be a better person or meeting the goals that I have in a church, which, which is to facilitate the worship and seeking God and to have a faith community that I can serve and be served. It's positive for me and uplifts me and, and is a great place for my children and grandchildren. If the church were not to be that, then I would say that the church is not true. Another question that comes up a lot is what to do with kids and how to teach them and how do we keep them from from the harmful messages from the church sometimes and the overly literal messages and some of the shameful messages? How do we keep them from that and how do we move them into a more metaphorical view where they're, where they're inoculated from faith crisis? And I don't really have great answers on that. That's pretty tough, but I think it's fine for young children to believe things very literally. And then as they get older, to start to inoculate them a little bit, to say, some Mormons believe this way, some Mormons believe this other way. Some people view that literally, some people view that metaphorically. And over time, I think if you do that just even a little bit, that they'll grow into, I think they're naturally going to move into these more secular, more metaphorical concepts anyway. I think the challenge is almost how to get that deep testimony of the church that it's part of them and that they want it and they that they identify with the values that the church is teaching. I have five children and I love them and I don't know where they'll all land as far as in the church or out of the church and they'll do what's best for them and I have complete confidence in them and unconditional love no matter which direction. The church is there. I love them and I know that they'll be doing what's best for them no matter what. My perspective is that my kids aren't on trial or the other millennials aren't on trial on whether or not they're going to stay in the church. I think the church is on trial whether or not we can keep them, whether or not we can transform ourselves fast enough to be relevant to them and to be meaningful to them. I think we're the ones that are on trial and we're the ones that need to act fast to retain the millennials. So I hope we can keep people. I hope we can make this church a place that attracts people and makes them want to stay even after they've been through a faith crisis. I hear from some people, what you preach sounds great, but that's not what I experience on Sunday. And my Sunday experience is too difficult and I don't want to be the guinea pig. It's too painful. Good luck, but it's not for me. Maybe in 20 years, the church will have changed enough that it'll be a comfortable enough spot for me, but it's not there yet. And so I'm going to stop hitting my head on the door because it's too painful. And that might be true. And this paradigm is not for everyone. I hope we can be a visible enough people that the church wants us to stay and that the church, from a leadership perspective and from a membership perspective, can want us to stay and change incrementally to help us be more comfortable. But I understand if it's not for everyone. Spencer Fluman ends his talk with this really strong, inspiring message. This intellectual and spiritual work can be difficult. It can be exhausting. I know some of you are tired. You're not sure you can keep at it. You go ahead and find some stillness today. And I might add here, it's okay to take a break sometimes, take a week off, take a month, take a year, 
take 10 years. Maybe there'll be a time and place when it's better for you in the future, but you might need a break. Gather your strength today. Rest up today because tomorrow we ride for Zion. And it's not quite Zion if you're not there. Remember, you don't ride alone. Step back and consider the thousands around you. Consider the thousands who preceded you. Consider the unnumbered hosts yet to come. You don't ride alone. This path takes courage and vision. Yes, it takes faith, and faith will always be counterintuitive in this world. So is love. Why believe or hope or care when the data seems so often stubbornly trailing in other directions? Faith, hope, and charity are audacious in such a world as this. But make no mistake, we'll find the place that God for us has prepared, even if it seems far away today. Just when your strength is flagging, you'll catch the glint of some gleaming tower off in the distance, and you'll sense that God is there. He is. Keep going. God is playing the long game, and we should too. If we understand the scale of the struggle, the ride will not end. The restoration will not conclude until every daughter and son of God who will come has been safely gathered into his extended covenantal embrace. Okay, so that's what I wanted to accomplish, and I guess that's what we wanted to accomplish with this whole 12 episodes. I'm not exactly sure what's next. John Gee, a a well-known conservative apologist, who is very critical of people in our position this middle way. He said, typically only the two polar ends of these are intellectually stable positions. And he's talking about the Book of Abraham in this case. And he's saying the only intellectually stable position is his position, which is that Joseph Smith translated Egyptian papyri that were literally from Abraham. And then the other end is that Joseph Smith is a complete fraud. He's saying that the only intellectually stable positions are the two polar ends. He says, the people that try to maintain the middle ground position historically tend to evolve out of the church, where they can't persuade their students or their children to maintain those positions. So you get into the middle ground, over time you lose your positive answers to any of those questions. And I get why he says that. It seems that way. People have been telling me for many, many years that this is not a permanent position. This is a transition out of the church. And I want to show that it's not. I want to demonstrate and model that this is a permanent position. And I'm asking all of you people out there who think that this can be a permanent position to join me. And I don't know what it is, but let's do something together. I think if we can get a core group of people together that are producing content or modeling this in a visible way, that people can trust us that we're here for the right reasons and that this middle way can be seen as a permanent spot And then people like John Gee can say, okay, they believe in the catalyst theory and they seem like good Mormons. They're doing the, they're showing up at the service projects. They're active in the church. They talk like me. They support the brethren. Maybe this intellectual middle ground that I thought was impossible, maybe it is a permanent spot. And then that makes the Sunday experience easier and easier as people are recognizing that there are good members who are viewing things a little bit different way and that we need to allow for them space also. So as I conclude here, let's address our three goals again, and let's address our three audiences again. We wanted to properly evaluate all the historical issues in a way that any church critic would say, yes, you adequately covered all those issues. I hope we did that. We wanted to create a paradigm to address those issues, but then also within that paradigm, it preserves enough of the Latter-day Saint church that made the church a attractive, worthy church to give our best to and to fully engage in. Not to be a wishy-washy nothing church, but, but to have real meaning and something that we can really put our faith into. And I hope that we've done that. 
And then the last one was for me to stay out of my state president's office and time will tell on that. But I think you've been able to see that I've been able to express differing views while affirming the important things about the church and while sustaining the brethren and keeping my covenants. And to my three audiences, to the fair Mormon apologists and to church leaders, I hope I've shared with you a paradigm that you can incorporate and that you can make space for. I hope that to ex-Mormons listening in, that I've been respectful to you and acknowledge the difficulties that you've had, but presented something that intellectually maybe you could get more comfortable with, uh, engaging with the church again in proper conditions. And then those to you who have gone through a faith crisis, I hope that I've presented a paradigm that can help you make sense of these issues and reconstruct your faith into something that's valuable and meaningful to you. So I guess that's what we wanted to accomplish. I know this church is true, and thank you for listening to the end.